Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Rose. Comradeship. Fair play. Those are the words, Dominic, with which the Frenchman Jules Rimet in 1928 uh, persuaded his colleagues on the Fédération Internationale de Football Association, FIFA. Beautiful French, Tom. Beautiful French. To set up a World Cup. And the legacy of that move is very much with us today, is it not? Because um, it's a week before the start of the World Cup in Qatar. Yes, it is. Um, 32 teams will be taking part. Um, and one of the things that strikes me about the involvement of Rime setting up this massive global juggernaut is it's very like the Olympics. There seem to be kind of Frenchmen appropriating <laughs> British ideals of fair play yes. and kind of marketing them to the world. And as with the Olympics, we did two episodes on the modern Olympics, didn't we? Um, and it began with our memorable account of Dwyer flonking. Um, if you haven't heard that do check that out uh one of the great moments on the podcast i think and we said at the beginning of that you know i i think that there are two areas of historical inquiry that lots and lots of people who otherwise are obsessed by history can say they're very proud to know nothing about one of them is religion and one of them is sport yeah i think that's absolutely right so in fact a lot of people who regularly listen to this podcast when we said we are intending to do the definitive history of the world cup they sort of, there were some people who reacted with horror. Oh, no, not football in a history podcast. But football is a brilliant window, Tom. It, well, so, so football, I would say, I mean, it's the single most popular activity that's ever been known by humanity. I mean, it's, it's followed by more people than any other leisure activity yeah. that, that we've ever had. So that in itself makes it of incredible interest. And that was a justification we had for doing an earlier episode on football with a friend of the show, Jonathan Wilson. But also, like the Olympics, it provides a kind of four-yearly temperature check on the state of geopolitics. Mm -hmm. And if you think about all the arguments that there currently are about Qatar, the questions about uh, bribery, about corruption, about um, the lives lost in in, um, indentured labor, building the stadia, the cultural sensitivities around Qatar holding it, this is absolutely the stuff of 21st century politics. And there's, it's almost impossible to think of a World Cup, and it goes right the way back to 1930, that hasn't in some way held a mirror up to the convulsions and the turbulence in the broader world. And I think it makes it an absolutely fascinating topic. And I speak as someone who, who really didn't know much about the World Cup before I started reading about it, the history of it. It's really extraordinary, really fascinating. I agree, Tom. I think it is fascinating because I think once we get into the story, it becomes actually a story not about, you know, so-and-so crossed the ball into the box and somebody else headed it, you know, a towering header into the back of the net. It's actually a story about nationalism, about the invention of national identity, about the way that often authoritarian regimes co-opt kind of popular entertainment. Um, And so there are characters that run through this story. I mean, Mussolini is there. The Argentine hunter of the 1970s, 
you know, the Hungarian communist regime. There are, there are so many interesting kind of characters. North Korea. North I mean, Korea, amazing. exactly. Yes. I mean, Jules Rimet, you mentioned Jules Rimet. So Jules Rimet was the third president of FIFA in the 1920s. I mean, Jules Rimet, um, you'll be pleased to hear since you're interested in the history of religion, Tom, that he had been profoundly influenced by Pope Leo XIII's encyclical about the dignity of work, Rerum Novarum. I think that's evident in every aspect of the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> but he had, Rime, Rime had served in the French army in World War One. He'd won the Croix de Guerre. Um, and then he's the classic person in the 1920s who sort of let's all be friends. Yes. Well, he, I mean, he says when he, when he's making his pitch to, to his fellow colleagues at, at FIFA in 1928, he says, you know, we, we must encourage mankind to be one. Yeah. Thanks to football. I mean, that's a real 1920s League of Nations thing to say, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, Cause it's in the aftermath of the First World War. Yeah. So it's, so it's, I think absolutely brilliant. So Dominic. Yes. The lead in. Yes. How is it that we have the Olympics kick off in 1896, but we don't get a World Cup until 1930? Or What's, do we, Tom? Or, or do, do we? we? Okay, so because, this is because it's all to do with the Olympics, isn't it? It is. So let's. But if we pull the camera right back, why do we have a World Cup at all? My answer, which some people may find kind of surprising, I would say the World Cup is is clearly a product of the British Empire. And that will surprise people because they'll think of British Empire sports as cricket and rugby and not, not necessarily as football. But if you look at the two countries that I would say to, to most people, certainly in Europe, they, they think they are sort of immediately identify with the World Cup. They're Brazil and Argentina. Neither of those countries were officially part of the empire. But if you take Argentina, for example, um, we know that British sailors were playing some kind of football in the mid-19th century when they were visiting Buenos Aires. Uh, Argentina had a big, big British population, so the largest British and Irish population outside the empire. The British were involved in banking, in trade, in the railways, in all these kinds of things. So Argentina was a kind of informal part of the, of the empire, I suppose. Um, there's a, they, they're playing cricket before they play football. Well, that's what I found so interesting is that in, in Brazil, as well as in Argentina, yeah. Again and again, it's actually cricket clubs that set up the football. It is. Absolutely. I mean, that's, so it, and, uh, and also, of course, in, in, um, in, in Europe. So AC yeah. Milan. Famously, AC Milan. Of famously. Course. But also the first, um, the first football match played in Austria. Did you know this? Uh, no, I didn't. Was, was played by the Vienna Cricket Club. I didn't know this. So I know that you've secretly behind my back been, been <laughs> well, obtaining facts from my former university teammate, Jonathan Wilson, historian of football. Yes, I have. So I took him, I took him out for, uh, for a meal. This is absolutely the difference between us, Tom, that, that you, <laughs> I spend the evening swatting up on Jonathan Wilson's books and you take him out I for went, dinner. Yes, yeah, exactly. But I would also, I, on this topic, um, I would highly commend uh, a new book that's just come out by uh, two brothers, Stuart and Philip Laycock, called How Britain Brought football to the world which has a splendid cover of a chap um in very baggy football trousers smoking a pipe with his foot on oh, very, good. very yeah. kind of heavy leather leather football and it's full of it, it goes through every country in the world saying how it how it was that it came to yeah. take up football so i should say back to argentina you mentioned the cricket club so it's at buenos aires cricket club that a guy called thomas hogg his father had been a yorkshire textile factory owner and thomas hogg is one of these absolutely classic late 19th century British figures. He organizes a swimming club, which he calls the Dreadnought Swimming Club in Buenos Aires. He establishes an athletics club. He sets up the uh, South America's first golf club. It's the energy, isn't it? It's it is. exhausting. And then eventually <laughs> in 1867, he places a, an advert saying, let's have a meeting to play football. 
at the cricket ground and and Shocking. they do and um it, it obviously takes off and it's actually so in a way that you could say the ancestor of the world cup is this match in 1888 that is organized by british expats in buenos aires to play their counterparts from montevideo in uruguay so yeah so that's just across the kind of the, the mouth of the river plate basically um uh, they're going to play against their their sort of neighbours to celebrate the birthday of Queen Victoria. That is the perfect genesis for the World Cup. It's South American rivalries, yeah, <laughs> interfused <laughs> with kind of British imperial exactly. primness. And- well, because as people who like football will know, Argentina versus Uruguay is the first World Cup yeah, final in amazing. 1930. Yeah. Um, so then it sort of takes off. Now Brazil. So Brazil is the country that most people associate with the World Cup, ultimately, because they won it more often than anybody else. And we'll be coming back to Brazil later on. Brazil is actually a similar story. They, they're less intertwined with the British, so they adopt football a little bit later. But it's exactly the same thing. There's a guy in Brazil, a legendary figure called Charles Miller. Um, he's been sent, he's the son of a, a Scottish um, businessman. Another he's cricketer. Been, He's another cricketer. He's been sent off to boarding school in England. And there's this sort of great story that he tells himself in his memoirs. He comes back home from university and he gets off the quay and Santos, actually Santos is the, is the port city with the, the club of which Pele played for. He gets off the quay at Santos and his father was expecting him to be holding his sort of degree certificate. And actually he's holding the, the rules of the game and two footballs. And his father said, the old man, he says, said, <laughs> what's this, Charles? My degree, I replied. What? Yes, your son has graduated in football. <laughs> and then Miller sort of goes and plays again. Um, they're playing at cricket clubs. They have two teams, one from the Sao Paulo Railway, one from the gas, t- the gas team. Then it spreads to the Rio Cricket Club. And so on and so forth. But the funny thing is actually, Tom, thinking, well, we'll come back to Brazil and how much, um, how important football is to Brazil's national identity. But uh, first of all, quite often in these places, people react with incredulity and horror at the spectacle of Englishmen playing football. (laughs) So there's a a newspaper report in Rio. Um, I'm I'm guessing this is from the 1890s. It says, uh, in Bom Retiro, a group of Englishmen, a bunch of maniacs, as they all are, get together from time to time to kick around something that looks like a bull's bladder. It gives them great satisfaction or fills them with sorrow when this kind of yellowish bladder enters a rectangle formed by wooden posts. Or in Sao Paulo, somebody writes, they call it a blind and balmy battle of physical force. Football is an English game and should only be played by the English. But of course it isn't. It spreads. It's taken up by the rich and then it spreads, percolates downwards. But having said that, of course, I mean, it is being played by the English and indeed by the Scots and the Welsh and the Irish. And so they have, so the earliest international match is Scotland against England, isn't it? That's right. And then there's a a championship is set up where all the home nations in the United Kingdom play one another. Um, and, and that is seen by people in Britain basically as you know what other international competition do you need we invented the game we're the home of the sport we don't need to bother about anything else but right. they do they do set up football in the olympics don't they and obviously the olympics is for amateurs yeah. and so in 1908 great britain beats denmark wins the gold following olympics in stockholm 1912 same result britain beats denmark so hurrah we yeah. are top nation the top nation <laughs> top footballing nation 
And, and, and no one in Britain doubts that. So this story is often told as a story. I mean, you'll see it again and again. People talk about British insularity and xenophobia, and that's why Britain um, doesn't join in the British sort of misguided sense of superiority. I'm not quite sure about that. That just feels like it's repeated so often that it's become a cliche. I think the truth is Britain doesn't need the World Cup. Because the infrastructure is there, isn't it? Right. Countries yeah. that care about the World Cup are often ones that have, frankly, have something to prove. So South American countries that have only been independent for a hundred years or so later on countries like a, a country like Hungary, um, that again is a sort of a, a sort of post-imperial post-war country trying to establish its own national identity in Britain. You have this existing ecosystem with this immensely popular tournament, the home nations tournament with all this sort of competitive club football. And basically nobody really cares about the prospects of playing matches against Paraguay or, or, or whatever it might yeah. be. It doesn't mean anything. It, yeah. So, so yes, there's, the British do, do well in those first Olympics, but actually to go back to the, the World Cup itself, the first World Cup final most people will, will know is in 1930 and it's won by Uruguay. But if you look at Uruguay's shirts, instead of having the two stars on their blue shirts to signify they've won the World Cup twice, they have four stars. And the reason is that two of the Olympics before the World Cup count as World Cups because they were organized by FIFA. Um, so those are the Olympics of 1924 and 1928. And Uruguay's story, actually, so Uruguay, just like Argentina and Brazil, there's a British pioneer. In this case, it's a Glaswegian called John Harley. Um, he went to work as a draftsman uh, and the railway lines first in Argentina and then in Uruguay. He became the player manager of the big Montevideo team, Peñarol. He played for Uruguay. So that was quite common yeah. in the early days that basically expats would play. It's very like in Cricket World Cups where you'll have, I don't know, Romania. Yeah. And there'll be one Romanian and everyone right. else will be from kind of India or Sri Lanka. Yeah. Well, I mean, they start out. I mean, that first match that we were talking about played for Queen Victoria's birthday. They're expat teams. Yeah. Um, that's what these national teams were. So Uruguay, um, what John Harley does is he introduces the Scottish style. So the English had always played a very, very physical, direct game, kind of kick and rush. The Scots had, had done something disgraceful. They'd started passing the ball between themselves instead of, just, instead of just booting it hoofing up. Hoofing it. Yeah, <laughs> hoofing it and running after it in public yeah. school manner. Yeah. Um, so John Harley introduced this. to in, you, The Eurograins played very successfully. They often beat their, their neighbors. Um, so... The 1924 Olympics is the first one where the football tournament is organized by FIFA. So that's why FIFA recognize it as a kind of proto World Cup. And the Uruguayans take that very, very seriously. So they're the classic example of a, of a small country that is sort of has always been squeezed by its gigantic neighbors, Brazil and Argentina. And it's basically Montevideo and, and it's hinterland, the port city. And the Uruguayans are very keen to prove themselves. Thanks to this Glaswegian guy, they've got this sort of forward-thinking game. And so off they go to Paris. So it's 1924. It's the, it's the Chariots of Fire Olympics, Tom. Yes, and it's the, it's the Olympics where uh, W.B. Yeats's brother wins Ireland's first Olympic medal with his painting. With, with his painting? Yeah. Do you remember? We had that in the Olympics, uh, yes, in the Olympics episode. Yeah. He puts in a painting, wins silver. Brilliant. Uh, but not gold, tragically. No, no. Silver's silver pretty good. Do we know who beat him? Picasso or something. I don't know. <laughs> Bring it home for Spain. Right. So the Uruguayans, so the Uruguayan FA, um, they pay themselves for the team to go. One of the Uruguayan FA bigwigs actually mortgages his house. And, and so this is the issue with the British teams, isn't it? And indeed with the Danish teams, where 
people can afford to be amateurs. Yes. The Corinthian yeah. spirit. Um, yeah. The idea that, that people have to be paid to play sport is shocking to the kind of British bigwigs who run their sporting associations. Exactly. And so when is it? Is it 1928? The British pull out of FIFA. They pull out because the Olympics are... Are are meant to be amateur. Yeah. But but they're agreeing to pay. They're not paying them to play, are they? But they're subsidising the wages. What they're doing is they're saying it's called broken time payments. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a swizz, really. They basically say you can pay people for the, for the work they would have done if they hadn't taken time off work to, um, to go and play in this amateur tournament. And of course, the, the associations basically, you know, completely abuse that to, 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 to pay their players professionally. So the Uruguayans, I mean, the, the people who go, sort of folklore has it that they are a marble cutter, a meat packer, a guy who plays music in carnivals, all this sort of, a boot black, all yeah. these kinds of things. But actually, of course, they are extremely skillful, um, professionals, professional players. Exactly. So they go off to, um, to Paris, the Uruguayans. All these journeys have this sort of comic opera side to them, don't they? They go on. So this is one of the abiding themes throughout the early years is the, the challenge of travel, isn't it? Yeah. That, that actually, you know, <laughs> taking 11 people, well, more, I mean, a, a squad, um, with, with the manager and whatever across the Atlantic or into the depths of Brazil or whatever. I mean, it's actually quite challenging. Yeah, it's a massive operation. And again and again, there comes some quite... So my favourite one is, is um, in, uh, in 1934 when, when it's held in Italy and the Mexican team comes across thinking that they've qualified, arrive, <laughs> find that they haven't. <laughs> they, so they have to play a qualifying round against the United States, lose and go back. Oh, you know, that's a long way to come. That's on a, a hell of a way to go. Yeah, <laughs> and never even a- to play in the World Cup. So for the Uruguayans in 1924, they have to, to, to pay, to help pay for this. They do a tour of Spain first. So they get the, the boat to Spain. They play all these matches in Spain and they go off to Paris. When they get to Paris, they're discri- they think the Olympic village is terrible. Um, so they, they, they rent or, or they find a chateau owned by a, the brilliantly named woman called Madame Pin, Mrs. Bread. And they, so Mrs. Bread assumes this sort of folkloric position. She, she's the kind of mothers them. Exactly. She mothers yeah. them. So they storm through the tournament. They win the tournament. They beat the Swiss in the final. Um, they get back to Uruguay. There's a national holiday. The government issues stamps. It's a huge, huge deal. And actually not just for Uruguay, but for South America generally. So the Argentine paper, El Grafico, I think um, Jonathan Wilson talks about this in his, his brilliant history of Argentine football, Angels with Dirty Faces. Epic yet intimate, a distinguished critic described Is that it. what you called it? That's you what called, I called it. it. Right, yeah. of course. Not influenced at all by the fact that you play cricket together. No, it's genuinely, it's a brilliant. It's it is a brilliant book. Not just a history of Argentine football, but a history of Argentina, I believe. I also said. As he always says, it's not really a football book, it's a history book. Uh, El Grafico says, said, millions of maps were sold in Paris to people who wanted to know exactly where that tiny nation that is the home of the football artist was. And soon there will be Argentinian and Uruguayan clubs going to Europe, just as the English came to South America to show us and teach us football. So there's this sense, even then, in the 1920s. You know, this is, it's not quite revenge, but it's basically the boot is on the other foot. The English have been patronizing us all these decades. The student is schooling the master. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi, Tom, for, for if you like Star Wars, which I know you don't. So you won't, you won't know what I'm talking about. I do, I, I do, of course I know what you're talking about. So 1928, the Uruguayans go again, don't they? They go to, they go to Amsterdam this time. This time they play Argentina. So Uruguay Argentina is the great rivalry. Well, and in 1924, 
it results in the first use of a fence to separate players from spectators. Is that right? Yeah. There's a match you, between you're full Argentina of, and Uruguay. Yeah, very good. <laughs> it's a top fact. Um, so the Uruguayans win, and the British have left FIFA completely by this point. It's partly amateurs, and actually the British were also, they'd had a rift with FIFA because they didn't like the fact that FIFA had admitted the central powers from World War One. So they I th- were... I, th- I think, you know, the justifications are stacking up. Well, actually the British will, will redeem themselves on that front when we come back to the aftermath of World War Two, when they were very keen on letting their old antagonists Good. back in. So, so those first two... Those are limp- I mean, I was going to say those first two World Cups. The Uruguayans would say they are World Cups. Um, so Uruguay gets its first two wins, and then there's the first official World Cup 1930. in 1930. And, and, and that's played in Uruguay for obvious reasons. They're the best team. But also, um, Uruguay is celebrating the centenary of its independence. But also, Montevideo has remained relatively immune from the Wall Street crash and the onset of the Great Depression. Whereas the Argentina is terrible, isn't it? Well, Argentina's sort of entering basket, you know, preparing to enter its its long running basket case phase. Um, also, they've built a spanking brand new stadium, haven't they? Which is very much a World Cup tradition. They have. They've built this stadium to mark their the hundredth anniversary of their independence, uh, the Centenario Stadium. And also, the Uruguayans say they will match. They will meet the expenses of everybody who comes. And we should we should preview here that um, we're doing a, a, a World Cup marathon that actually has nothing whatsoever to do with football. Uh, we're doing 32 episodes because there are 32 countries playing in the we World Cup. Indeed. And we're doing yeah. um, an episode a day on an aspect of the history of all these various countries. And in the episode that we've already recorded on Uruguay, you make the point that Uruguay was a very, very rich country. Yeah. And that sporting success tends to be associated with wealthy countries for obvious reasons because they can afford to invest in the infrastructure. Right. And that's what Uruguay is able to do in 1930. Exactly. It is, is a, it is a very prosperous country. It has a kind of proto-welfare state. Um, it's very forward-looking. And, and this is part of that. You know, f- for the Uruguayan government, football is a way to advertise Uruguay. This otherwise, you know, little noticed yeah, yeah. country to the world. So you have these amazing stories. I know you love all these stories about steamships and people crossing yes, the Atlantic. There was a brilliant article actually in the Guardian by a guy called Simon Burnton about this. And he talks about the, the, the ship. So the ship is called the Conta Verde and it's, it was built in Glasgow, but it's built for the Genoese. So it was named after a 14th century count of Savoy. And this ship, which later goes on to be bombed in the Second World War, um, because it's taken over by the Japanese, it sets off from Genoa in the summer of 1930. That The first p- people aboard are the Romanians. The Romanians are going to the World Cup. So you don't have to qualify. It's basically anyone can go. Well, because most Europeans refuse to go. I mean, initially, they all refuse to go. And so yeah. Jules Rimet kind of leans on people, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And, and it's the king of Romania. King Carol. <laughs> <laughs> he, he personally funds them to go. And they're all people who work for British oil companies in Romania. because that's why they've been playing football in Romania. So they, they all go on board and then they pick up the French. Then they pick up the Belgians in Barcelona. And then across they go the Atlantic to, to Rio, where they're going to pick up the Brazilians. And so basically for 15 days, all these guys are on the, the, the boat. Um, and they're just running around all the time and lifting weights. Isn't there a swimming pool? There's a swimming pool. Uh, they have comedy acts. There are yeah. string quartets. Yeah. It's basically, you know. Very it, Titanic. It's very Titanic. Yeah. yeah. There's another boat that goes called the Florida. So that's got the Yugoslavs on board. And isn't there a team that 
doesn't they miss their appointment right egypt egypt, egypt go. that's right egypt, egypt were going to go, go. but yes. there's a storm and they're delayed and they're crossing <laughs> yeah. from cairo and this yeah. they, they, they <laughs> sail, sail without them <laughs> so that's why there are 13 teams rather than 14 which makes exactly. it rather tricky to, exactly. to make up so they get to uruguay uruguay are the clear favorites they all look kind of very so bolivia are there but bolivia they play in berets which i think is a nice, a um, nice touch. and of course um you, you mentioned brazil and they are the only country to have played in every world cup they are but they're not very good in um you know they're not uh they're not the superpower and the usa is there the usa gets the semi-finals so do you know what what their nickname is uh the knickerbockers no the shot putters why the shot putters? Because they were physically absolutely huge. They had massive great shoulders. There's the great, f- the first sort of World Cup brawl is their match against uh, Argentina. So Argentina beat them 6 1 in the semi final. But um, <laughs> <laughs> this is when the manager runs up. One American, one American has to, plays on with a broken leg, would you believe? One American loses four teeth and has his lip ripped off. Uh, one American has to be taken to hospital with a stomach injury, and another American is left limping badly after somebody attempts to dislocate his knee. But my, so, my favourite story about that is the, is the US manager who runs up to the referee <laughs> to complain, but he's got a bottle of chloroform on him, and he drops it and, and passes out. <laughs> Which, tremendous scenes. So the referees look splendid because the referees are wearing a shirt and tie. (laughs) Which is so, honestly, I mean, I think... All referees What wouldn't you give to see referees do that? But, I mean, all the matches are full of amazing detail. So um, the first goal is scored by a Frenchman, um, but the first goal scored by a Uruguayan, the the striker only has one arm. Oh yes, Hector Castro is it? Yes, yeah. he'd he'd lost his arm his arm as I think when he was kind of thirteen or something with a yeah. cha- in a chainsaw accident. So basically, if your image of early World Cups, if you know nothing about football, and your your sort of supposition is that it's all people with wooden legs or <laughs> you, would, you know playing a shirt and tie, absolutely right. Yeah, you're right. So so there's the final, isn't there? And it's it's right. Uruguay against Argentina. The referee says, "I will only play if you give me a police escort." And there is a ship primed and ready to take me away. <laughs> That's right. And so Uruguay wins. Argentina, you know, there's massive kind of rioting and all kinds of stuff. There's some hilarious stuff about. So you're talking about the Egypt missing their ship. So fifteen thousand Argentinians pack into these steamers to take them across the bay to Montevideo for the. But there's terrible fog. So the, the steamers all get stuck in the fog and the Argentinians only get off the boat after the, the day after yeah. the match. Just Pile off to join yeah. in the, the fun of trashing the city. To find out that, that Uruguay won. So it's a massive, I mean, this was a massive deal. There were riots in, in Buenos yeah. Aires. Uh, two people were shot. A woman was stoned for waving the Uruguayan flag. Meanwhile, in Uruguay, all the victorious players, so they won um, 4-2. And actually, uh, the guy with one arm plays, Hector Castro plays for Uruguay. The Uruguayans are all given a house by their government as a, as a reward for having Fair enough, so, I think. So it's Fair a, enough. It's a, it's a big deal. And this for, for people who think that the World Cup doesn't matter. This is why it does matter, historically speaking, because it, it amplifies the global role of countries that otherwise would, would, would not be particularly kind of noticed. Uh, by the yeah, great powers. Agreed. But also, I think another reason why the World Cup, in certainly before the Second World War, is so interesting is that you get a sense of the, the kind of shadows spilling forward from the Second World War, uh, the sense of, of uh, the horrors that are to come. So mm. the, the French captain, in 1944, he will be shot by the resistance as a Nazi collaborator. He ends up wearing the uniform of the SS. And the Yugoslav captain, the year before in 1943, will be shot by the Nazis as a partisan. 
And yeah. you, you know, you, you, you think of the, the World Cup, this Corinthian spirit, all this kind of stuff. And yet you, you have captains playing in it mm. who are going to die in the war and lots of, you know, lots of others will. But then also you have uh, the two World Cups that follow the one in 1937, 34 and 38, and they are massively shadowed by the rise of fascism and the horrors that have come in, in the war. You're right, Tom. I mean, there's, there's a bit of darkness ahead, but just before we get to the darkness, I'll tell you one last funny thing about the 1930 World Cup. So the Romanians go home um, on the transatlantic boat again, but one of them is taken ill, a guy called Alfred Eisenbeiser Ferraru. He's, got, he's taken ill with pneumonia. When they get to Genoa, he's taken off the boat to, to hospital to recuperate. But basically what happens is the team will then go off without him and they arrive back in Bucharest and everyone, the huge crowd gathers to see them. And people notice that he hasn't got off the boat and a rumor spreads that he's dead, <laughs> that he's died in South America. Word of this reaches his mother and she organizes a wake to, to, to basically to mourn her son. And on the morning of the wake, he walks in the front door, <laughs> oh. presumably, with, and his mother takes one look at him and faints on the spot. But anyway, she doesn't die, which is good, because he then goes on to uh, compete in the Olympics, Tom. This is your World Cup Olympics um, uh, crossover. Sort of crossover. Yeah. Um, first as a figure skater. <laughs> wow. And then, the, and then in the Romanian bobsleigh team. <laughs> Blimey. What an absolute hero. Yeah. Well, well that's well, wonderful, Dominic. That, that's the first of many World Cup miracles. Um, I think we should take a break at this point. When we come back, we will look at the shadow of Mussolini over the World Cup, which is quite a big one, isn't it, Dominic? It is indeed. We will be back very soon. Bye-bye. Hello, welcome back. We are talking the history of the World Cup. Um, Dominic, in the first half, we uh, we saw the World Cup kick off, um, Uruguay, 1930. The next World Cup, 1934, was held in Italy, yeah. which by that point, of course, very much um, under the jackboot of uh, Mussolini and the fascists. Um, and Mussolini doesn't really like football, does he? Uh, dictators tend not to like football. Yeah, because they um, can't kind of predict it control. and control it. Yeah. So I was fascinated to learn that, that Peron in Argentina, I mean, he, he takes Argentina out for, from the 1950-1954 World Cups because he just can't control the emotions. Right. But Mussolini takes a punt that he can. Yes. That, 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 that Italy will stage a tremendous World Cup and that the team will, the national team will actually win. And he's, he's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, Mussolini has an interesting relationship to football. Supposedly, he doesn't like it himself. Part of Mussolini's linguistic nationalism, they call it calcio rather than some derivation of football. And he claims that it derives from Siena, doesn't he? The, the kind of very violent... Yeah, a calcio kind of Fiorentino. Yeah. Um, they, they play this in Florence, and he claims that that derives from a Roman game. Yes, and so, and so the, his stadium... And again, this tradition that you have to build an enormous grand stadium that proclaims the nature of the country. And he says that, um, uh, it's, it's consciously designed to evoke memories of the Colosseum and yeah. the kind of muscle bound sub classical statues of people in, in football kit and ice hockey pads and all kinds of things. It was very, very odd if you've ever been. So the Mussolini regime had basically been leaning on FIFA as far back as 1930, saying we want the 1934 World Cup. Mussolini thinks this would be a tremendous ad advertisement, basically, for his regime. Uh, he puts the organization, a lot of that is run by this guy called Achille Staracci, who is basically the Goebbels. He does love football, doesn't he? He does like football. He loves sport. So Staracci, um, he's 
People call him the high priest of the cult of Il Duce. His own daughter said he breathed only by the Duce's order. He's absolutely obsessed with sport. He does all things like he jumps through circles of fire and he jumps on a horse over a car to prove the virility <laughs> of the sort I, of... Wouldn't it be brilliant if sports ministers had to do that? <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see. Or, you know, exactly. I'd, I'd Tracy all, Crouch. Right, exactly. <laughs> Colin Moynihan, if you remember yeah. him. Well, he'd been well, a he jockey. he was an athlete. He was yeah. an Olympic athlete, wasn't he? Was, was he a jockey? No, he was a cox, was he? Yeah, he was a a rower. Yes, he was a rower. So whether he could jump through a circle of fire, who knows? However, we've we've got distracted. Um, So Staracci, he in some ways creates the iconography of the World Cup. He produces all these posters. Well, Marinetti Marinetti does the poster. Yeah, the futurist. And also they come up with a massive vulgar cup, don't they? So so they've got the Jules Rimet trophy, which is quite a modest thing. Yeah. And then they... (laughs) Because they're fascists, they have to have a massive, huge one, so which is six times, times the size. <laughs> yes, yes, and it's um, group of, fic- of of footballers in front of uh, in front of the fascists, the right. um, the uh, the birching rods of the ancient Roman Republic. But, what, but one of the interesting things about this is the countries that tend to to really care about the World Cup in the twentieth century are new countries or relatively new countries, and Italy is a good example. Italy has, has not even existed for a century. Um, when Mussolini wants to host the World Cup. And, and it's seen as a kind of nationalizing project. So Italy, this country where actually people don't even really speak the same language, that somebody in Sicily and somebody in Piedmont can't really understand each other. Uh, it's really important to show that we can do this. We can, we're a modern country and we're all working in tandem. And presumably this is another reason why the British nations are slightly sniffy about it. Because I gather that in 1934, FIFA issued a report naming the top, the world's top football nations. Yeah. Uh, Austria, yeah. England, and Scotland. Scotland. This was their chance, Tom. This was their chance. And they blew it. So the Austrians had a very good team. I and mean, the Austrians are the great um, pre-Second World War World Cup champions. They kind of get away. The Vienna Cricket Club. Yes. The Austrians had always really cared about football. They had a brilliant team called the Wunder Team in the late 1920s and early 1930s. They'd actually... In 1934, they'd only lost one game in the previous three years, I think. And that, of course, was to England in England. Because in those days, whenever anyone came to England, they always lost because of the rain, because of the mud, because of the kind of, you know, the crowd rattling at them or <laughs> whatever, putting them off. Um, the smog. Exactly, the smog. Um, but it, but Austria lose to Italy in the semifinals. And then Italy played Czechoslovakia in the final uh, in Rome, in the Stadio Nazionale, uh, in front of Mussolini. Czechoslovakia has just basically teamed up. They've gone Team Stalin at this point. The story is, is that it's seen as being fascism against communism. Is that not true? It's slightly... that I've seen that repeated in quite a lot of football articles and sort of football websites, but it's actually not really true. Oh. What had happened was that the French had brokered a, a, a putative pact called the Eastern Pact, where all the Eastern European nations plus France would team up with the Soviet Union. This is basically an anti-German pact. And the Czechs had said, yeah, we're well up for this. But actually, it never really comes to fruition. So the, the idea that it's a uh, fascism versus communism, I mean, the Czechs are not communist. However, what is true is that the Second World War was very much on the horizon because Mussolini, in his diary, four days after the World Cup final, he is going to the Venice Biennale to meet for the first time a certain Herr Hitler, um, who's, who's been only been Chancellor of Germany for a year. Who also doesn't like football. Who also doesn't like football, exactly. Um, just one other thing on the final. Italian defender Luis Monti. Yep. Uh, the only man to play in two World Cup finals for two different countries. 
So he played for Argentina. Yes. So that was quite common going right through. Well, actually, there was a guy in 2006, Mauro Camoranesi, Argentine born, but plays for Italy. So especially between Italy and Argentina because of immigration into Argentina from Italy, that's very common. Right. So 1938 is in Paris and all kinds of major um, uh, football playing nations are not there. Spain, for obvious reasons, because it's a civil war. Austria, because it's been annexed in the Anschluss. That's right. Japan, too busy invading China. And so because Japan drops out, the Dutch East Indies go in. So that's a colonial team. Yeah. And um, absolutely my all-time favorite World Cup team because they are captained by a man wearing glasses. (laughs) (laughs) They don't do very well, Tom. They lost 6-0 to Hungary in their opening match, and that was the end of them because it was pure knockout in those days. It doesn't matter. I I think it's wonderful that a man could wear glasses. So this is where you get politics obviously intervening because it's played in France. The The Italians arrive in Marseille, and they are booed by the crowds. And there are local exiles, lots of exiles have fled to France from Italy and, and they sort of, you know, um, encourage people to give yeah. the Italian team a hard time. And so Mussolini in the quarterfinal tells them to wear black shirts. Is that right? That, well, again, I think that's, again, is this a myth? I think there's a bit, there's an element of myth. So there's also a story that they do wear black shirts. I don't know how much this is because of Mussolini's direct influence. So there's also a story, for example, that Mussolini sends them a telegram, win or die. <laughs> Vincereo um, morire. Right. And this is completely untrue. Apparently historians have interviewed the players before the players died and the players said there was no such, you know, there was no such telegram. However, Dominic, yeah. Um, according to top historian of football, Jonathan Wilson, this is your dinner. I spoke again. to him. This is your dinner. And dining here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he said that, um, so Italy, Italy get to the, uh, semifinals and they're playing Brazil and the Brazilian team, there are wholesale changes to the Brazilian team That's for right. no apparent reason. So Leonidas, their, their, their best, arguably the Brazil's best player is, is dropped for the semifinal. No one knows why. The great thing about Brazil, the number of classically named players. Yeah. Yeah. So, Socrates, Socrates, juvenile, brilliant. Um, so it's possible that there's a bit of bribery there. And then also there are wholesale changes to the Hungarian team, which who are brilliant. I mean, mm-hmm. who, who really should have won. Um, and Jonathan suggests that perhaps this was um, Miklos Horty, the dictator. Well, is he dictator? It's kind of slightly loose, isn't he? But he's verging on that, um, trying to keep on side with the fascists. So it's possible. But then the trouble is with all the. So we'll see this particularly with our, with our next episode. The trouble with all these stories is that that there's there's almost never any documentary evidence for these things. Are you saying that 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 prevents us from mentioning them? <laughs> no, no, no. We've Tom. just done some episodes on Alfred and cakes. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. But it's really interesting how. You can tell how these, when you trace them back, how these sort of urban myths about the World Cup, because of course there's so little reporting in those days and so little, the matches are not, you know, they're not filmed and preserved. So there are urban myths that are then initially re- told as everybody knows they're slightly apocryphal or they're, they're speculative, but then they're told and retold and they become sort of established as cast iron fact. And we'll see that, you know, going right into the 1970s with the Argentine World Cup, very controversial. Um, but anyway, yes, they, they Italy do win. Um, I mean, they were a good team. Nobody, not even you know. I'm sure Jonathan Wilson would have told you they were. They they are very a very team, yes. formidable team. They get back home. They're given gold fascist medals. They meet Mussolini. They're given a big bonus of three months' salary. I mean, actually, not as it's not as good as if you were a Uruguayan where you get a house. But there you go. 
and and they bring back the Jules Rimet trophy. Yeah. And they the um the commissioner of the Italian Football Federation then hides it under his bed throughout the Second World War. There's a slight um quality to the idol of Marduk about the Jules Rimet trophy. <laughs> People keep the Babylonian, it. The, Babylonian. the Babylonian god who kept being his 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 statue kept being removed by various other empires. It keeps kind of being nicked and stolen, reappearing, and all kinds of weird things. Anyway, so, so it doesn't get lost in the in the Second World War. It stays under there. Another interesting bit of triv from Jonathan: um, two players. There are two players in the World Cup who've played in World Cups either side of the war. There was Alfred Bickel, who was Swiss, and Eric Nielsen, who was Swedish. And I think one of the things that's striking about that is both those countries were neutral. I don't know whether yeah. it's coincidence or not. Because if you were a footballer. The chances are you'd be very, yeah, you'd be, you'll be involved in straight the, away, and we'll we'll see that actually when we get with to West the, Germany, with we, West yeah. Germany in the yeah. later in the nineteen fifties. But let's let's just so had there not been the Second World War, probably um, the World Cup in nineteen forty two would probably have been held in Brazil or Argentina, and I think most football historians think it would have been won by Argentina or Uruguay. So the Uruguayans had refused, having been the great power, they had refused to go to these European World Cups. Yeah, they very English behaviour because. <laughs> They said not enough people had gone to their World Cup, and so they would just boycott all these other European ones in protest. The war happens. Um, basic, it's really interesting. There's no great enthusiasm to, con- to, to hold more World Cups after the end of the Second World War. I think there's a slight sense that the World Cup had been a gimmick, that yeah. this had been a sort of comical gimmick, and who cared? And also people have got better things to do. I mean, the role played by Mussolini would, would not show it in a good light. Exactly right. Um, so Japan and Germany have been kicked out of FIFA anyway because of poor behavior. Uh, <laughs> the British countries have, however, rejoined FIFA. And eventually FIFA managed to find somebody who says, well, we'll do the World Cup. And that is Brazil. Um, now, the Brazilian World Cup, for those of us in England, Tom, held in 1950, is famous for one thing above all and it pains me to say this uh but i suppose we just have to address it england go for the first time now famously i'm going to be heretical now famously people say well a typically insular arrogant xenophobic hubristic the english don't prepare properly it's all a shambles the players all complain i think this is actually slightly exaggerated because everybody went in shambolic way yeah, to World Cups in this period. So the English are not unusual in kind of training in a dog field or whatever. Or they have getting, three days in Wembley, don't they? I yeah, think, to practice. Oh, they play. They actually trained at some. Sorry, I said dog field. <laughs> they trained at a place called Dog Kennel Hill. I don't know what a dog <laughs> field is. It's not a thing. Um, anyway, they trained at this place. It was the home of Dulwich Hamlets. Dogs, dogs will appear in this story later on. Uh, it will. They will. Um, they go on this, you know, incredibly long flight. I mean, it's a flight, not a boat. So they go on a flight that stops everywhere. It stops in Dakar. It steps, goes across the Atlantic and it goes to Rio. They're too hot and they don't have the food and all this kind of thing. They, they beat Chile. And then there's this terrible, terrible, terrible day when they go to uh, Belo Horizonte and they play the United States. 500 to one outsiders. So here's the perfect example of how little we know. One, we read that the British, the English rather, they hit the woodwork of the American goal 11 times. They have more than 90% possession. But how anyone can know these things? 
I mean, how can you tell? The match isn't filmed and, and recorded. People aren't noting down, you know, all the statistics of the game. Well, it's all kind of this Homeric quality that we've already discussed, that one of the reasons why the World Cup has this kind of resonance is the opportunity for myths to right. be generated. But so what we do know is that eight minutes before half time. Um, one of the American players, they're semi-professional, sort of boots the ball vaguely near the English goal. He hits this guy who's from Haiti called Joe Gachins in the face. <laughs> I mean, so this is what some accounts say. Other people say it's a brilliant header, but it sounds more likely that this ball yeah. just hit his head and flew in <laughs> and, and flies in past the, the English goalie. So the Americans lead 1-0. The English attack and attack and attack and can't score. And amazingly, the Americans have beaten... England, the home of football, 1-0. And the funny thing is this story, this result, which is a great shock, makes the newspaper headlines everywhere in the world except for two places. That's the United States and England, the two countries that played. The United States, because absolutely nobody cares about it yeah. at all. So there's only one American journalist at the, at the 1950 World Cup. He's a man called, with a fantastically American name of Dent McSkimming. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's something from a martin amos novel exactly <laughs> thomas pynchon or something so yeah. dent mcskimming writes for the st louis post dispatch the newspaper who refused to pay for him to go so he's he's going on his holiday and paying for it himself uh but nobody really wants to print to, to print his stories anyway because nobody cares about football uh and in britain well, in Britain, there's a much, much more important sporting story, isn't there? Go for it, Which Tom. is that um, this is the day on which England lose for the first time at cricket to the West Indies. Yeah. And this is a much bigger story. Completely obviously. eclipses the football. So British newspapers at that time were much, much smaller than they are today, partly because of austerity, post-war austerity, and newsprint restrictions. So there's actually very little sport coverage anyway, and it would simply never have occurred to anybody that this was a story even remotely comparable to the big cricket news. No, you're quite right. Because at the time, you see, I think in the time, to most, so most people in Britain, I mean, as soon as England lose, the entire British press corps goes home. They're not interested <laughs> in what happens in the rest of the tournament. Because I think to them, the World Cup is, is it, it, it's completely, um, it, it's only with hindsight that this appears like this colossal story. Yeah. Because at the time, I think to most people in Britain, this feels like a, a kind an of amusing embarrassment. Yeah. An amusing embarrassment. It's like a summer friendly, it's a yeah. summer friendly tournament. I mean, it's not a friendly, but it feels like a bit of a gimmick. So, yeah. you know, oh, oh yeah, what a, what a terrible embarrassment, but, but who cares? That's what but of course, but of course for, for everyone else who's playing, that's not the case. And especially Brazil, and yeah. especially for Brazil. So Brazil are really, really focused on winning. And it's a weird setup, isn't it? Because there isn't really a final. It's no. all done on this, this is kind of done on points, but essentially what is it? The, the last match it's Uruguay again, our friends yeah. and Brazil. Exactly. And what is it? Brazil needs to win by two. No, two no. Goals? Brazil only need to draw Tom. Oh, Uruguay need to win by right. two. No, Uruguay just need to win. Okay. Uh, but Brazil, if they draw, they are the champions. So, so Brazil, okay. Brazil, who are slight latecomers, uh, they're behind Uruguay and Argentina. Um, Brazil have, have been, we'll come back to Brazil and the importance of football in the next podcast. But Brazil have been ruled by this authoritarian modernized called Getulio Vargas in the 1930s and early 1940s. Vargas is a very strange man, Tom. He becomes leader again in Brazil. So he's the sort of dominant 
person in Brazilian history in the 20th century. But unusually, he committed suicide in office. A very rare thing for a dictator mm. to do. Uh, he was depressed that things weren't going so well for him politically. Well, I suppose Hitler did. <laughs> yes, Hitler did. <laughs> yeah, I suppose Hitler did. But it quite things weren't going well for him either. But, it, but in quite <laughs> unusual circumstances, it's fair to say. Yes. Yes. Anyway, um, so the Brazilian nation, they've started to sort of throw themselves into the embrace of football much more keenly. Uh, very famously in 1938, a Brazilian writer called Gilberto Freira had said that Brazilian football was the expression of their mulattoism. That's the expression he used. He said it was basically their own brand of football was a product of their Afro-Brazilian kind of slave heritage. And this would make them superior. They were more physical. All this stuff that now looks a tiny bit dodgy, to be honest. Right. Okay. Um, but but so so the racial makeup of the Brazilian team. There are three black players, aren't there? There are. Yeah. Um, including the jo- the goalkeeper Barbosa, who is who is the best goalkeeper in the world at the time. Who is regarded as an excellent goalkeeper. Yeah. The Brazilians are absolutely convinced from the beginning they're going to win, just as Uruguay had. Hosts often do well. They'd built this stadium, the Maracanã, especially. The Maracanã is this colossal stadium with a capacity of over one hundred and sixty thousand people. Um, it is seen as a symbol of Brazilian modernity and national unity. It's the first big concrete building in Brazil. So it anticipates all those buildings in Brazilia later yeah, in the 1950s. So it's kind of modernist. It, absolutely. Yeah. And the, news, the Brazilian newspaper, Anoit, said, today Brazil has the biggest and most perfect stadium in the world, dignifying the competence of its people and its evolution in all branches of human activity. And also Omundo. The, the day of the final, they uh, they have run a picture of the, the Brazilian team, don't they? With the front page headline, these are the world champions. Uh, this- the Uruguayan captain sees yeah. it. He buys every copy that he can. He takes it up to his teammates and he tells them to urinate on them. <laughs> <laughs> Very Which sad. I think is brilliant yeah. man management. So any any captains of sports teams listening to this this is the way forward. Your, your Harry guys. Kane going to do, do this, uh, Tom? <laughs> yes. um, with the, with, the, with, with England, with, with the with the Western Mail when England play uh, play Wales. No, I mean the Brazilians. I mean this is if you want. You were talking about the classical stuff, and they all the Brazilians all have kind of they all called Leonidas or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean this is the great twentieth century object lesson hubris. Because the Brazilians have composed a samba ready to go called Brazil the Victors. The mayor of Rio actually congratulates the team on becoming world champions before the final even happens. <laughs> you, players who in less than a few hours will be hailed as champions by millions of compatriots. You who have no rivals in the entire hemisphere. You who will overcome any other competitor. You who are already salute as victors. So... Everybody's massively overexcited. <laughs> 200,000 people cram into this stadium that with a capacity of 160,000. Um, people have already died in stampedes for tickets. There's such enthusiasm. And what's worse, Tom, Brazil actually went one nil up in a match they only needed to draw. And then, every, you know, even if you know nothing about football, from the way we've been telling this story, you know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. <laughs> Uruguay score two goals and win the match 2-1. There's such shock in Brazil. The, the doctors at the stadium had to treat 169 people for hysteria. I, so I was reading about it, and um, over the over the years that followed, Brazilian sports writers compared this defeat to the murder of JFK, <laughs> the Titanic, 
Right. And Hiroshima. Oh wow! So, if, <laughs> any any um any British listeners, we're not the only people who indulge in massive to say. Yeah. <laughs> sporting hyperbole. But I think, but but the saddest story is the one about Barbosa, isn't it? Who the the goalkeeper who who lets the goal in, yeah. and it's the three black players in particular who, who are the particular objects of Brazilian fury. The, the press, the Brazilian newspapers say they're cowards. They don't have discipline. They don't have the discipline of their white um, compatriots, all this sort of stuff. I mean, Barbosa in particular, he would later in life tell a story about going into a bar and a sort of semi-deserted bar and hearing a woman turn to her little boy and say, look, that's the man who made all Brazil cry. And he, he comes to be seen as a kind of, as a Jonah. Yeah. Um, he, he, it's, it, it's thought that he'll bring bad luck to any team that he, um, that he plays for and he comes to believe it himself and so there's this story isn't there that he gets a, the groundsman to smuggle the goal posts out yeah you know the goals post through which the 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 two goals have been scored by uruguay and he he takes these these uh, goal posts and he sets them on fire and he has a barbecue and he invites his friends to come and eat the meat that has been grilled on the the well, burning embers of these goalposts to try and expiate the curse. But it doesn't do him any good, Tom, because even in, as late as 1994, uh, a World Cup Brazil won in the United States. He went to the um, the training camp for the Brazilian team and he was turned away because he was a curse. Um, so the most famous uh, story about the aftermath of 1950, there's a boy in a place called Bauru, um, which is in Sao Paulo State, very poor uh, who's 10 years old, who um, is with his father. And he says it's the only time in his life he ever saw his father cry. And the boy says later, there was a sadness so great, so profound, that it felt like the end of a war with Brazil the loser and many people dead. And Dominic, who was that little boy? So that little boy was somebody called Edson Arantes do Nascimento, better known as Pele. Dun, dun, dun. On that note, Tom... We should uh, blow the whistle. We should blow the whistle. This is only half time, though. No, it's 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 the it's the quarterfinal. We've got the semi-final tomorrow, and then we have the final on Wednesday. So tomorrow we will be returning with the history, the extraordinary political history of the World Cup in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Then uh, we will reach a climax with a very special guest, uh, the former England captain Gary Lineker, will be talking us through what's happened to football and to the World Cup. Um, from the 1980s onwards, his own memories and the implications. You know, he's somebody who thinks quite a lot, of, isn't he, Tom, about the media, about um, the sort of the, the political role of the World Cup. But then we will be getting into our 32-team marathon where we'll be selecting aspects of history from the stories of all the competitors. So and that's Qatar. Uh, Qatar. So that's everything from Roman emperors and Phoenician queens to 1970s urban guerrillas, protest movements, emperors, South Korean, South Korean courtesans, courtesans yeah. uh, iguanas on the Galapagos Islands. We, so much range. And just to emphasize, I, I am assuming that if you've listened this far, you have a, a moderate degree <laughs> of interest in football. But if you don't, please be reassured there is absolutely no football in this marathon. It is a festival of world history, Tom, of global it, history. A festival of global history is exactly what it is, Dominic. Um, so nonstop fun. Um, so we will, we will see you tomorrow. We've got England winning the World Cup. 
We've got World Cup in Argentina. Germans behaving badly. But also very well. well but Germans times. behaving well and badly. <laughs> yes. Um, so we will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 